0: If we find our identity in our own strength or some other thing we have attained along the way, we will not delight the Lord. And if your goal in life is to delight the Lord, you should have that healthy reverence.
1: His voice is known the world over as a faithful proclaimer of the gospel. Dr. Ravi Zacharias will join us today here on First Person. Hello and welcome to our program, highlighting the work of God and the lives of people. I'm Wayne Shepherd, delighted to have you join us for the next few minutes as we get the story behind the life of Dr. Ravi Zacharias. We'll get to that conversation in just a moment, but let me remind you that we're found online at FirstPersonInterview.com. At the website, you can listen to any past interview we've done, including today's, and check the calendar of upcoming programs. You'll find this and more at FirstPersonInterview.com. And a special welcome to those of you who may be listening for the first time today. New radio stations are joining us almost every week, and it's great to have you tuned in. The first time I heard Ravi Zacharias speak was at one of the Amsterdam conferences sponsored by Billy Graham in the 80s. And when I asked a friend what he could tell me about Ravi, he simply responded that God was going to use him to reach intellectually minded people all over the world. And he was right. At a convention of Christian broadcasters in Nashville, I asked Ravi to sit down with me and I began by asking him if he ever reflected on that day when his thoughts once turned to suicide.
0: Often, Wayne, actually, because of my visits to India frequently. In fact, even as I'm talking to you, it's just been about five days since I got back from overseas, and uh, uh, although that was from Thailand and Singapore, prior to that was India. And uh, my colleagues and family ever traveling with me, any time we drive past the hospital where it all happened, at that time it was called the Wellington Hospital, uh, it's changed its name, always... Uh, First I point it out and then in my own heart always talk to the Lord about how that whole event uh, haunts me from time to time and yet it's a haunt that reminds me he was never absent Hmm. in my greatest time of need. Hmm.
1: Talk to me about the details of what was going on in your life.
0: That is sometimes a little hazier for me uh, because really so many things converged. Uh, I was a student at the university in Delhi. I had a lot of friends. On the one side, I was enjoying life with sports, cricket and tennis and table tennis. Those were the good games I really enjoyed playing and was playing for my college and playing at a fairly competitive level. Uh, But on the other hand, I had no interest in studies. Uh, No aptitude for it, no desire to pursue any academic career, but my dad was a pretty powerful man in the Indian government and so was putting pressure on me to work harder and do better and my buddies were all doing well, I wasn't. So if I were to narrow it down to one thing, it would be the fact that I knew I was a failure academically that was not going to come to be. And in the the country at that time, if you didn't succeed at the highest level, you were not going to make it. But on the other hand, I think I was quite philosophical in my thinking, asking questions of life and meaning and purpose and relationships. And um, something just within me said, if this is what it is, I really don't want it. And uh, so tried to end it all. I would say... I'm looking back in retrospect, but who knows all the intricacies at that time or what else was going on inside mm-hmm,
1: me. Mm-hmm. A lot of pressure at home then to succeed?
0: Oh my, uh, you could go to India today. Uh, I, in fact, um, there's a very recent award-winning movie, and by the title I wasn't going to watch it, but somebody kept writing to me and said, many people said you need to watch it. It was called Three Idiots. <laughs> And uh, uh, India is one of India's leading actors called Amir Khan was acting in it. And it's the whole story of their university experience and how their professors just kept demeaning them, calling them idiots. You know, you're never gonna make it, you're never gonna succeed. And then in uh, as they move forward, actually one of them ended up committing suicide or something like that. Two of them attempted suicide, and uh, somehow as they made it towards the end, uh, it was an indictment against the cultural pressure that is put upon young men and women. That's the whole motif in the movie. So it's still there.
1: So what you felt and what you experienced is every bit as real for young people today.
0: Probably... It is a a known fact that the greatest number of suicides are committed in India during examination time all across the country. That pressure to perform academically is a cultural reality. And what I'm saying is not a betrayal of the culture. Anybody living in that culture sitting here would be nodding their head.
1: Mm. So when you reach that point, suicide was was what you were experiencing, you, you attempted suicide.
0: Very seriously, um, and almost succeeded. Um, so
1: what was the turning point afterwards then?
0: Well, I, there were two things actually, and when I, where I'm talking to you, uh, one of my close friends, Robert Walgemuth is here, you mm-hmm. know the name of the I Walgemuths from your Robert, Chicago yes. days. And the first time I ever heard the gospel was through the mouth of Sam Walgemuth huh. in Delhi. I remember that evening well, because it was torrid with over 100 degrees in the auditorium, and he was perspiring in his dark suit speaking to us. Nobody walked forward, but I did. He remembered the incident. I remembered the incident. But uh, uh, your mind is a blur with the gospel. What got you to that meeting? Uh, my sister said they were going to serve refreshments afterwards. (laughs) So food has always been a a great attraction to me. I, I, I went there, walked forward, still not sure what it all meant, except I wanted to have what he had. And it took a few months later on the bed of suicide when what he said and what I held in my hand as a Bible brought to me by a Youth for Christ worker who also had sung a solo that night that was the linkage that God put together?
1: Did a, a hunger for the word then develop immediately?
0: Yes, I really? would say. Yeah, I would say the way you've worded it, correct. The hunger for the word, because uh, I was not much of a reader, and yet in my in my book, Walking from East to West, where I tell the whole story. My buddy and I, my closest friend, who is now my brother-in-law, he was an orthodox Hindu, and I was invited him to a Youth for Christ meeting. He gave his life to the Lord. We were literally walking past a dustbin, a garbage dump, and right at the top, we saw a book, and uh, there was no hard cover to it. But we could we leaned over, and it said "Epistle to the Romans" by W. H. Griffith Thomas. Till this day, I don't know who th- who tossed it in the neighborhood. We picked it up. And I've got it with me, and I still own it. Uh, The binding is torn off, but here to find an evangelical voice in Griffith Thomas and to have a commentary on the book of Romans of justification by faith and the grace of God, Within a matter of one or two months, my friend and I led the teenagers in a Bible study every Monday night from the Book of Romans. It was in Hindi, you have a proverb saying, which literally means, uh, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. So we were were the one-eyed men leading as kings in that little Bible study. Did you have
1: any mentors, any people who could lead you?
0: Over a period of time, yes. Uh, I was 17, and I moved to Canada when I was 20. In those three years, Youth for Christ became my church. Really, Fred David, who is today who was the Youth for Christ director in Delhi, then is now living in Los Angeles. John Tabe from Calgary, Alberta, was Asia director of Youth for Christ. These men became my mentors, and they are now uh, uh, amongst the people in this world I most revere and admire. Both of them very much around.
1: Hmm. What were the circumstances of coming to Canada then?
0: Coming to Canada was another one of those links. Uh, I was in the thick of my studies in business management. That was one adjustment my father gave me. He wanted me to become a doctor, and I just didn't want to go into pre-med. I figured organic chemistry would be one subject in heaven where we will not be taught, uh, and I just didn't want to go through. What's the purpose, huh? That's right, CH3COH type of things, you know? So I... uh, he allowed me to go into business, which was more my propensity, and he was shocked that I was placing at the top of the class, which is interesting. Wayne consistently at the bottom of the class mm-hmm. prior to my coming to Christ, and then never left the top three after that in any institution anywhere. God changes what you want mm-hmm. to do mm-hmm. and how 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 He harnesses what He's poured into mm-hmm. you. Uh, my father became a friend of the famed um, Roland Mitchner, who was. Quite prominent in Canada, later on became Canada's Governor General. He was the ambassador to India from Canada. He met my dad, made a proposal to him of our the children moving to Canada. One thing led to another. I was 20 years old. My older brother was 22. My dad said, "You two boys go and scout the land, and if it's good, we'll all move." So May of 1966, my brother and I landed in Toronto with $400 in our pocket, uh, hoping to survive till we could find a job and make it. uh, It seems prehistoric now, but that's the way it happened.
1: I think you did okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a great move for many reasons. One of them being, I met my wife-to-be there. Margie is from Toronto. We were married six years after I landed there, and uh, our children were all born in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're still actually dual citizens, Canadian and U.S., yeah.
1: So when this turned to more of a gospel ministry...
0: It turned to a gospel ministry. Um, many people had a, a role in that. Uh, while I was finishing up my business studies and uh, uh, getting ready to join uh, well, one of the universities in Canada, I was working in order to earn my money and pay my bills. And I was sharing my testimony at opportunities, speaking at youth people, young events, young people's events. And people would just say to me, have you ever thought, of God's hand on your life to become an evangelist. Frankly, the only picture I conjured up in my mind was Billy Graham. I didn't know too many evangelists, and I knew I didn't have what that would take. I never wanted to be in the public eye to that extent and so on. Uh, Long story short, uh, enrolled in a seminary uh, to take evening classes uh, while I was working in the hotel industry, and then Quit from there, and in 1968, two years after I arrived in Canada, uh, attended what is now Tyndale College and did my undergraduate in theology. Then went to Trinity, did my graduate work, and after that on to Cambridge, and so on. The rest became.
1: What did you see as the end game of that that seminary experience?
0: Good question. Uh, not sure, except that God may have in have had in mind for me at that time some form of ministry, but I didn't picture in my mind what it would be then uh, the christian missionary alliance with whom i am still affiliated licensed and ordained when i graduated in 72 they offered me credentials as an evangelist i still hold those credentials Um, you know they were a remarkable group
1: i'm interested in the sequence because is it often true that god calls before he reveals
0: that has to be that sequence because he's pouring into you what he is going to use of you, even though you may not know it at that time. Almost everyone who I know in some form of calling, be it in ministry or be it a very successful business person that God is using today equally uh, to touch the globe, will say never dreamed of it this way.
1: There's more coming up with Dr. Ravi Zacharias in the second half of today's program, First Person. Next time on First Person, Michael Card and Scott Rowley talk to us about friendship. All of us know we need a friend in Jesus. And then that next part was, here's the way you show it. You lay your life down for your friend. There's this essential quality of relationship that Jesus is offering to us in its, in its friendships. They've been friends for 30 years and serve God together. Michael Card and Scott Rowley join us next time on First Person. Part two of our conversation now with Dr. Robbie Zacharias, which took place in Nashville just prior to the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. But as we spoke that day, we did talk about God working during times of upheaval.
0: You know, any time you see catastrophic events taking place in any part of the world, and by catastrophic, I define it not just as the downward spiral, but people in the thick of maybe something uh, dramatic taking place, either culturally or otherwise, uh, historically, it's a change for them. That is taking place right now in China, in India, and in the Middle East, uh, the entire subcontinent there. what I When God moves that dramatically in some way, people are open to meaningful conversations. I think we missed a very significant opportunity in Eastern Europe in the 80s when things were changing there. We took a gospel that did not understand the wounds of the European people, the angst, the anguish, and we were giving them simplistic answers as if they would respond as an American would respond in a three minute presentation. These people have suffered much, they have hurt much, they have lost family, they have images of the church and Christendom that is not the same as the way the American would see it. We lost that opportunity. When I went to Russia in the 80s, the auditoriums were packed. People tell me now if they go, they're surprised if there are 15 or 20 that show up at a university open forum. So to answer your question, China, India, and the Middle East. I was in Cairo, Alexandria, and Armenia in November.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: We had over 2,000 come to Christ in three nights. You could almost see that the restlessness we are seeing on the media now is already present in their hearts. India has spiraled up in the economic area, and what have they found? There's nothing out there, spiritually. And so the irony is while the West is looking to the East for spiritual answers, the East is looking towards Christ and saying our own um, uh, philosophy and religion has not met our needs, certainly not to enable them to live with these successes. So I would say we are missing some extraordinary opportunities and how best to meet those needs right now.
1: How do you describe your ministry, what God has asked you to do? called you to do
0: i believe god has called me first of all in preparing me wayne from two different parts of the world i am as home as much at home in india as i am in the united states or canada i speak hindi very fluently i understand tamil i can i can make go with about two or three indian languages and i'm very comfortable culturally in the west now having spent the better part of my life there post uh, 1966 but uh My calling, therefore, has been shaped in my ethnicity and in my privileges that God has given to me to be raised in the West, supported by Western friends to such a large degree. But the other way, I think he has brought the confluence of both philosophy and the aesthetic side and the beauty side of life, the art side of life. I am a romantic by nature And by that, I mean, my work at Cambridge University wasn't the romantic writers. So the aesthetic side, the poetic side, the beauty side of life, and the argument side of life. So my apologetic cuts across those lines and deals with people in the felt implications of their rational incoherence. That's really where I'm at in my apologetics.
1: And you're not alone in that. I mean, through Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, others have come along. You have mentored others and... It's, it, there are this, many people up this there This
0: ministry could only have been brought together by God because I'm not smart enough. Seriously, <laughs> I'm not smart enough to put together an organization. I know where I want to be, what I'd like to see done, but to put together the components to, to God. So we have a large number of apologists. We just graduated three with their PhD from Oxford University in the last year, all three of them in Islamics.
1: You're so active in ministry yourself. How do you mentor, in a sense, those others involved?
0: Well, you mentor in uh, to certain degrees, uh, and that depends on how. I think through your writings you do it, through traveling, the, my travel assistant right now is a young man, in a, he's 23, graduate of Purdue, but preparing to go into theological training, so for two years he's taken time out just to travel and be uh, with you um, one-on-one. And you're As, intentional about that? Intentional, mm-hmm. yeah. and the good thing is it multiplies because he has his own orb of friendships and how he then uses these. After the first three months, he said to me, uh, Krin said, I've learned more in the for these three months than I did in three years at university because you're meeting people, you're in hands-on situation, you're learning the do's and the don'ts. Uh, so you mentor at different levels, uh, through your writing, through your interactions, through open forums, through having people present, but having your life intentionally poured in.
1: Just strikes me that that is what Jesus did too. Y-
0: yes, I believe, you know, uh, it's a very much an Eastern way. It is interesting that the... Indian scriptures are called the Upanishads, which literally means to sit in the shadow of. You sit near to. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think the scriptures, you have to sit, the the holy scriptures, the, the Bible and the, the gospel, you have to mentor in proximity.
1: So a young person listening or the parent of a young person who's been gifted with a, with a, with a mind from God that to pursue these things, your encouragement is all the formal education, but look for these mentors as well
0: and look for them early. Uh, you don't want to get into a salvage operation. Uh, when a when a person goes into university, you lose that reach very quickly within the first year. And the universities are, in many ways, hostile to the things that are sacred in the, uh, as in the gospel. Uh, that's not totally the scene, but it is quite predominantly the Why scene. Why are they so vulnerable? Uh, I think they're vulnerable because in many ways, they're still so young. An 18 year old is very young. And uh, they are suddenly bombarded by the intimidation of highly qualified people. I mean, look at what is happening in our nation today. The restlessness, the rebellion. Where is all this coming from? It's coming from uh, the entertainment world, from the media world, from the academic world that are principally anti-absolutist. The the main worldview that conditions these three avenues are relativistic avenues. I I don't know of any professor today you would talk to with rare exception who'd believe in absolutes. And so this relativistic situation ethical thing, they're they're immersed in it and you can't get out of it that easily unless you are being mentored by somebody or by some writer who has already prepared you to expect this and then it's not a surprise. Hmm. Let me
1: talk for a moment about your writing. How do you find time to not only write the books that you do, but to pour yourself into them the way that you do?
0: Well, I'm just writing one now called Why Jesus uh, Rediscovering His Truth in an Age of Mass Marketed Spirituality. And uh, as I'm working through the manuscript, the one thing you know why it's called a deadline dead uh, date is because <laughs> the drop dead date is because you sometimes wish you would before it is due. It's tough, Wayne. It's tough, and publishers are kind that way. They know they have to give you a little more leeway. When I'm when I'm on the road over 200 days a year,
1: why do it then?
0: Because it is what you will leave behind after you have gone. What has influenced my own life? Great writers who have all gone on, you know. I look at the Carl Henrys, I look at the Kenneth Cancers and um, uh, James Stewart of Scotland, F.W. Borum, G. Campbell Morgan, F.B. Meyer. Uh, these men have long gone, but their voices still linger. Yeah. Mm.
1: Leave us with scripture. What's on your heart and mind?
0: Well, I think, um, you know, as I talk to you today, I'm going to be leading in a prayer at the State Senate here And I was thinking of what uh, the Lord wants of us. His delight is not in the legs of a man or the strength of a horse. You know, Not in the strength of a horse or the legs of a man. His delight is in them that fear me, says the Lord. If we find our identity in our own strength or some other thing we have attained along the way, we will not delight the Lord. And if your goal in life is to delight the Lord, you should have that healthy reverence for him. That is one. The second thing I would say is that old verse that has always been a standby for me in Matthew 6, 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. If our goal is God himself, Uh, A.B. Simpson, once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once his gifts I longed for, now the giver own. Once I longed for healing, now himself alone. Our pursuit should be for God himself.
1: It's hard to argue with a life that's been called so powerfully by God to be a witness to the world of the truth of the gospel. My thanks to Ravi Zacharias for his conversation today, teaching us once again that only God, knowable through his word, is able to provide ultimate meaning and purpose to life. This entire interview will be archived at our website for you to review or recommend to a friend. Our online address is firstpersoninterview.com. I hope you'll make use of that website and tell others about it. Once again, it's firstpersoninterview.com. And in addition to the archive of programs, there's also a calendar of upcoming interviews, firstpersoninterview.com. Well, next week my guests will be Michael Card and Scott Rowley. Now these men have walked together in biblical friendship for over 30 years. Michael and Scott and I have been in the studio many times together and we sat down recently to talk about what it means to walk together as brothers in Christ. You'll hear the complete conversation at this time next week on First Person. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson. I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to First Person.